if you're here for the first time, you're here at the very end uh, of a journey. We've been working through the book of Esther. Uh, It's a great story. If you haven't read the book of Esther, it's well worth a read. It's actually worthwhile just picking up the Bible and just reading it as a story. It's a true story in the sense that it's a historical account. It occurred um, in the uh, Persian Empire uh, under King Xerxes, historically well-established king, archaeological evidence establishing Xerxes as one of the kings of the Medes and the Persians. Uh, And when we look at uh, this account in the Bible, what we realize is that it is an account of historical events, but at the same time, it's more than that. It's remarkable, if you have read it, you might have noticed, it's remarkable because it doesn't mention God at all. It doesn't mention his name. And yet, the, the careful reader, in fact, the narrator writes it in such a way so that the careful reader is left without any doubt of the purpose of why it is in the Bible, that it's reminding us that there is the greater being of the God of creation who is there even when he seems absent. I think that's really astoundingly important for us today in our daily lives, in the lives that we're living, in the events of life in this world, in all of the things that are going on, in the various uh, things that concern us, maybe, in the various situations that impose on our lives, one of the things that we see that we're able to relate to in this narrative is it's about, in a sense, it's about ordinary people going on in their lives. And as they go on in their lives, what we realize is that they are living their life in, in the light of and believing that God is shaping all things. That's what's going on behind the story. That's, if you like, the underlying. God is the sovereign God who is working out the events of life. And what we see is the two uh, key Uh, if you like, heroes in the story, Esther and Mordecai, are examples of what it is to live life consistently, faithfully, diligently, even when the worst things happen, which is exactly what happens uh, to Esther and to Mordecai and to all of God's people who are associated, in a sense, with uh, Mordecai uh, particularly. That association causes problems for all of God's people. So what we get to at the very end of this story is this final chapter. It's almost like a, it's kind of like a rounding off. It just gives you the sort of, and this is what happened from there on. We see that King Xerxes has an incredible impact in the whole of the empire. And what we also see is that alongside him, Mordecai also has an incredible impact in the whole of the empire. Now that is striking. It just looks like uh, a passing sentence, doesn't it? Mordecai's greatness is established in the empire. And yet at the same time, it's the most remarkable of statements. It's astounding on a number of levels. Firstly, what we see is somebody who was, in a sense, at the beginning of the story, an unknown, has become second to the king. 
not by his own doing, not because he's been really smart politically, but because God has moved in events and has placed him in that situation. That's remarkable. If we read in the previous um, chapter, we can't get it up on the screen, but the final uh, verse, final few verses, read like this. Uh, to, to establish the days of Purim and that de- at their de- designated times as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them. So Queen Esther has also become an incredibly important person in the Persian Empire. Second to the king in a different way. She's married to the king. Whereas Mordecai is second in political authority within the empire. Just stop for a moment. Sometimes do you think that the Christian faith is all about the idea of of a kind of nothingness? You know, this quiet, insignificant, silent voice that doesn't seem to be heard. It might be that at this particular point in our country, at this time, that might be how it is. It might be that the message of the Christian faith is not particularly prominent. But we need to remind ourselves that God has the ability and the opportunity and the sovereign will at any point in time, whenever he wants to, to establish a voice at the very highest levels of society. This is the greatest empire in the world at that time. And God has placed his people in the situation. What we also see is that there is a kind of a contrast. There are, in terms of the two heroes, there are also in the story, there are two villains who are replaced by the people that God wants. There is Haman, who was second to King Xerxes, who is now replaced with Mordecai, a just, righteous good man. Look look at the contrast that is established through the story. At a time when the the nation or the empire was under under the kind of control of this man Haman, who after all the king had given his ring to him so that he could stamp with authority whatever he wanted, what we see is Haman is bringing on the whole of the empire a destructive, selfish, self-centered, egotistical response. There is an unjust, horrible kind of flavor to the power of the empire at that point in time. We need to realize that this is not just a cutesy little story. In actual fact, it was a decree that Haman made to wipe out all of the Jews across the whole of the empire. We, we know when we read about how that affected Susa that there was great distress in the city. In other words, if we were, um, if we were Persians at that time, it might well be that living next door to us might well have been some Jews. They might have been really good friends of ours. We might have worked together in the marketplace. And then there's this decree that comes out that Haman issues across the whole of the empire that is wiping them, our next door neighbors, wiping out our friends, people who we relate to, people who are, does that create a good society? Or does that create a horrific, unjust, 
bloodthirsty, self-centered, egotistical society. It's terrible, isn't it? And in a sense, what we see is God intervenes to overthrow that and bring in a just response. And at the same time, Mordecai becomes instrumental in the establishment of God's purposes. There's some debate, but we read in Nehemiah, which comes 30-odd years after this, and yet occurs uh, a book earlier in the Bible, uh, we read in Nehemiah that there are a number of people who go back to Jerusalem under in t- sort of like a leadership role. One of them is named Mordecai. There is every indication, according to the, uh, the scholars, that it is quite possible that that is, we can't be absolutely sure, because it's a, just a name that can be similar to, you know, I... I'm Paul, and somebody two generations older than me may well have been Paul. But Mordecai, there's every indication that Mordecai actually went back and became part of that leadership team that reestablished Jerusalem. Why? Because God was working on a number of levels. It's not just about making society better. It's actually about establishing the security of Jerusalem and the promise that God made that I will deliver from Jerusalem a savior. I will deliver a new king. There is a future for those who trust and believe in me. And yet at the beginning of the story, God's people are in exile doesn't look as if that's going to happen. Jerusalem is a, is a derelict wreck of a place. The temple has been knocked down. It looks as if the hope of God's people is wiped out. And then we have Haman's uh, desire to wipe out all of the Jews as individuals. It looks as if the promises of God are being subverted by human intervention. That's what's at stake. Do you sometimes feel like that? That the promises of God in Jesus are being subverted by human intervention. When Jesus said, the gates of Hades will never prevail against my church. In other words, evil, those who are opposed to the glory of the message of the gospel in those spiritual powers and authorities that are opposed to it, will never prevent, they'll never win. Do you feel as if they might be winning? (laughs) Jesus has made that promise. Mordecai and Esther's story assures us that the God who made promises in the past is the same God who we can rely on today. Because it looked like his promise of Jerusalem was wiped out. And yet what we see is through this story, God sets in place the first foundations, Mordecai in a leading role, so that the future is that Nehemiah can go back and rebuild Jerusalem. It's a remarkable foundation that God lays for his promises into the future. Maybe there's something more. Who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Possibly the kind of fulcrum verse, possibly the fulcrum verse in the whole of the story. It's the turning point where Esther has ended up being dragged into the palace against her wishes and ended up being queen. 
And it, it finally reaches that point where Mordecai says, our people are under threat. It might be that you're in that position for just this time. Maybe we could stand, stand back now and say to Mordecai, you know what, Mordecai? Maybe you're in just the place that you're in now for such a time as this. Because that's how it unfolds. Esther was there for that moment to reverse, in a sense, the threat to God's people. But look where Mordecai now is. Maybe he's there for just a time as this. There, are, there is an amazing reversal that takes place in the city of Susa. Mordecai becomes prominent. His reputation spreads throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. We read in the previous chapter in verse 4. We now read that he is using that influence, using that position of power and authority to take care of and to bless and to, to establish the well-being of the people of God. Look at what it says. Mordecai the Jew, verse 3, was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. What a turnaround. What a, a remarkable turnaround. And yet, in a way... It's not, because it's what God has established. Listen to how God speaks to his people through Jeremiah. Verse, chapter 29 and verse 7, it says this. Also, seek the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Wow. Here's Mordecai. He's effectively been taken into exile. Previously it's happened, but he's been born as a Jew in exile. What's his attitude to the city in which he lives? What's his attitude towards the king who is... Uh, declaring unjust rules. What's his attitude? His attitude is precisely what Jeremiah encourages. He seeks the well-being and the prosperity of the city. How do we know? Because at the very time when the, the king, who had taken his younger cousin into the harem, at that very moment where he has the opportunity to pay back because he hears a threat for Xerxes' life to be taken, what does he do? Does he sit back and think, here's my time. I'm going to get you back because you've taken my younger cousin 
uh, into uh, your harem. You've taken her. You've abused her. She's ended up against her wishes as your wife without any decision on her behalf. And yet what you've done is you've dragged her into that situation. I've heard that somebody's going to try to kill you. What is his response? He seeks the well-being of the city. And he lets them know through Esther the plot. Now, what a remarkable attitude. What a remarkable way in which this man is living. Because he's listened. He's understood what it means to live in that situation when he is not living in Jerusalem. It sounds like we're back to the very beginning, doesn't it? It sounds like we're back to the very beginning, those of you who've been able to be along this study as we've looked at the whole of the book. It's about how do I live? How, therefore, should I live when I'm living in Susa instead of Jerusalem? And Mordecai becomes an example. He says, I'm going to seek the well-being of the city in which I live. Where's the foundation for those words that Jeremiah speaks? Why is that important? Because already God has decreed it. Genesis chapter 12 when he speaks to Abraham and he says, I will bless those who bless you. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. In other words, reach out. Do not become antagonistic. Do not become hateful. But reach out. And those who respond because You are a representative of me in this world. I will bless. And it worked out in just that way. It worked out in his great, great, great grandson, Joseph, as he goes into Egypt. And God blesses through the blessing that is imparted on Joseph. God God blesses his people, but you know what? It spreads out. It reaches out. It extends. Because God is not a God of antagonism and hatred towards this world. He is a God who seeks to bless. We are the ones who are antagonistic and rebellious against God. We're the ones who stand back and say, I will not listen. We're the ones who refuse to respond to him. And yet, he is the one who reaches out and he blesses in two ways. He blesses by engaging and by speaking. And he blesses through the presence of his people. Do you see how that's established? It's established in Abraham. As he says, I will bless those who bless you. It's established through the words of Jeremiah, where he says, go and seek the prosperity of the city in which you live. Do good for them so that it might go well for the city and go well for you. And it works out in the life of Mordecai and Esther as they seek the well-being of a corrupt and violent and God-hating empire. (laughs) Let me just say that again. It works out well as they seek the good for a violent, corrupt, God-hating empire. In other words, the way that they engage is counter to the way in which they are being engaged with. That's how we've seen it work out. 
They've been treated in this way and they've responded in the opposite way. And the outcome of that has been blessing for them and blessing for those around. Because what we end up with now is an influence for good at the very top of the Persian Empire. Remarkable. So that was back then. Has that got anything to say to us today? I think Esther speaks loud and clear in terms of how we look at that and how we respond and how we think. Where are we today? You know, if we, if we used metaphorical kind of language, do we feel as if we're living in Jerusalem or do we feel as if we're living in Susa? You look around in the world in which we live. Is it a world which is instinctively engaging with the message of God? Or is it instinctively rebelling against it? Are we living in a world which is loving or hating the message of Jesus? How therefore should we live? How therefore should we live? in a violent, corrupt, God-hating empire, if we want to use that phrase. The empire of this world. I think there's a, a remarkable picture that is painted by the way in which the impact of Jesus on his people in the first two centuries as the Christian church was established, is, if you like, it is a reoccurrence of this kind of living, this kind of loving this world, and yet not, uh, not giving in, if you like. To the, do, you, do you see the way Mordecai and Esther lived? They didn't live uh, totally absorbed and accepting the world as it was. They lived distinctly. At some points it was going to cost them their lives. And yet they lived faithfully. And yet they still sought the good. You know, in the, around about 200 AD, there was a Christian leader called Tertullian. And Tertullian observed... He looked around and he saw what had happened since Jesus. So here we have the Roman Empire. Jesus Christ has come into this world and he has created, we'll come on to Jesus in a few minutes, but he has created a remarkable storm. Uh, if you like, Palestine is a no-mark place of the Roman Empire. In relative terms, you would definitely say it's not Rome. You know, it's a backwater. It's a political hotbed, but it's a backwater. And yet Jesus comes into that place and he impacts the Roman Empire incredibly. So much so that there is an initial response by the Roman Empire of absolute persecution. Incredible persecution against those who claimed to follow the God of the Bible in Jesus. Jesus, representative of God in this world. In other words, if you worship God in Jesus, what you're doing is you are not worshipping the gods of the Romans. And that's threatening to our society. So, rather than enter into pluralistic dialogue, 
and the idea that we might have freedom to worship who we choose to worship. Rather, we will wipe you out. I've used those words carefully because I think actually as soon as the church ended up with power, it started to behave exactly the way that it had previously been uh, received behavior. It had started to impose where previously it had said, we, we, we respect the right for you to worship whoever you want to worship, but we desire the freedom and the liberty to worship the God who we choose. You know, the Christian faith actually introduced into our society the concept of pluralism in worship. It introduced that, and then it kind of lost that idea for a while, but it introduced it. The Roman, church, uh, the, uh, Roman Empire responded by seeking to squash this threat to religious worship. And yet, what happened against that backdrop of persecution? And if you've been to somewhere like Rome, you'll have perhaps been to the Colosseum and read the accounts of Christians being martyred and all of that kind of thing. And every effort being made by subsequent emperors to greater or lesser degrees to wipe out this message. What does Tertullian say 200 years later? Listen to this. We are but of yesterday. In other words, we've not been around us Christians for thousands of years. We're only recent in relative terms. We're but of yesterday. And yet we have filled all the places that belong to you. Cities, islands, forts, towns, exchanges, the military camps themselves, tribes, town councils, the palace, the senate, the marketplace, we have left nothing but your temples. What a remarkable impact. It's been another piece of work, a recent piece of historical work done by a guy who at the time wasn't a Christian. His name's Rodney Stark. Rodney Stark has looked at the incredible rise of Christianity and he's observed this. How did it occur? He's looked at it very much from a sociological point of view. He's not looked at it in terms of divine intervention or anything like that. He's just looked at how things worked out. And his observation is this. As he's looked at the various accounts and the records, how did it happen? Because the Christians stayed in cities when plagues attacked. And they cared for the sick. And they cared for the dying. And they impacted. And they did what? They did Jeremiah chapter 29. They sought the well-being and the prosperity of the city. They cared. They cared. Because for them, caring was an extension of Jesus' presence in this world. It was that significant And Tertullian responds 200 years later by saying, as we look at it, we have seen that the Christian faith has spread incredibly. You know, it is still, thank God, as Jesus promised, going on around the world today. It's still going on exactly the same way. People being reached, the Christian faith being reached out in ways which are both declaring Belief and hope in Jesus Christ. They're saying this is what we need to believe in. 
But it's not indistinct from the fact that we actually want to care. I think that Esther speaks out to us. But you know, there's a greater foundation. I said we would be coming back to Jesus. There's a greater foundation because actually what we see portrayed is ultimate servanthood. It's what we see. What did it cost for God's people to be saved? What did it actually cost? It cost Esther, didn't it? If you look at what actually happened in that young woman's life, it cost her dearly. She was taken away from her people. She was the one who was, in a sense, subjected to the most awful of situations in human terms. As a young woman, having been taken, put in the harem and taken for a night with the king, that is exactly how she, her life unfolded. She was not given, in any sense, any hope. It cost Esther dearly. In a sense, I think we could almost go as far as to say this. For God's people to be saved, it cost for Esther to be cut off from God's people. <laughs> There's a moment, actually, where Esther says she's in the palace. She can't get to her people. She's separated off from them. And she says through intermediaries, go and fast. Go and do that out there because I'm cut off from you. Go and fast so that there might be hope, so that I might engage with the king. It cost her. You know, we need to understand for a people to be saved, it costs. That's the message of the Bible. Redemption always costs. It is never free. It's never free. It's not as though God can engage with this world and just pretend that everything can be reversed without any impact, without any cost. It cost Esther. It cost the impact on Esther and the family of Mordecai. It cost actually for her, as far as we can see, for her to continue to be separated off from her people. As far as, we see, as far as we can see, she ended up queen to King Xerxes. As far as we can understand, that would mean that she would never again be able to engage in the religious pursuit of God's people. Just think about that. Somebody who is determined to live faithfully to her God can no longer, as far as we can see, engage in the religious joys and celebrations of God's people. She's cut off. Because for God's people to be saved always costs. And if we say that, if we think about that very core Bible principle, that should be for us, as we read in the Old Testament, just one huge springboard. Just, it's as though there is an idea there 
which is not just something which is kind of possible, but rather something which is central to the very core of the ideas of the Bible. It always costs for people to be redeemed. And it's like a, it's like a springboard that sends us into the New Testament. It just throws us forward. Because what do we see? We see Jesus who came into this world, a world which was corrupt, violent, and rebelling against him. How did he come in? I think we could almost say, in a sense, that when we see the life of Jesus, we see Jeremiah 29 worked out. He sought the well-being. You know, we see Jesus... Spending time in this world with the broken, with the sick, with the dying, with the insignificant. What kind of God is displayed in the Bible? A God who cares about the insignificant. A God who cares about the marginalized. A God who cares about those who represent in physical terms what we are, all are in spiritual terms. You know, it's not as though God is there, there saying, I'm only concerned about you if you are sick or if you're ill or, or if you're dying or if you're homeless. He's saying, look, think about that and realize it's a spiritual picture. Because you're all like that in front of me. You are all spiritually sick. You are all spiritually homeless. You are all spiritually dying. And yet I have come into this world and I'll live it out in practical terms for a while. So that you might see that the God who we worship is a God of compassion and a God who cares for those who, as the Beatitudes say, are weak and helpless, and hopeless. As Jesus says, those who know that they are sick, who know that they need a physician. How did he come in? Well, the Son of Man, he says, he self-declares, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. If Esther gave her life in a kind of way, Jesus gives his life in an absolute way. Because he is the ultimate servant. If Mordecai is a picture of what it means to be a kind of a servant seeking good, how much better does Jesus become? The ultimate servant who comes into this world for you and for me so that he might serve you and so that he might serve me. How? By giving his life as a ransom. By paying, in other words. We look at what's going on around the world. We hear all sorts of terrible stories, particularly at this moment in time in South America. The idea of ransoms being demanded willy-nilly. There is ransom being paid, it's estimated, every day in South America. 
to a greater or lesser extent. It might be the equivalent to a couple of weeks' wages and it just goes under the radar and it's never mentioned. It might be the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of pounds. There are ransoms being paid for people to be redeemed all the time. And sometimes that results in the death of one so that another might be saved. But Jesus comes into this world and he dies. He pays the, the ransom. He makes, he, he actually, in a sense, as God makes the demand and pays the price. Isn't that great news? Isn't that what we see just in a little glimmer as we conclude this journey through Esther? For such a time as that, and for such a time as this.